Good morning. Good to be with you. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 22? We are finishing our series on the life of Abraham this morning that we've been looking at for the last five weeks. You can, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can find a blue Bible on the ground near you and you can follow along with me on page 16 of those uh, blue church Bibles. Let me invite you to stand with me as we read this, uh, probably the most well-known um, account in the life of Abraham. It's a gripping story. It's a, it's a, it's a shocking story. And, um, and this is God's word to us. So let's listen to uh, the word of God in Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, Oh, sorry. Let me start that again. (laughs) After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, we uh, look to you with faith, God, and we come to you um, with hope that you would speak to us. By your word, by the power of your spirit, would you encourage us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated, please. Well, recently I was uh, watching with uh, one of my kids 
these videos you sometimes come across on the internet about uh, you know the the modern marvels of, of engineering feats in the world and so we were watching a, a video on YouTube about the Panama Canal and um, it's amazing to see how the Panama Canal works and uh, I think we know in general um, you know how, how a lock works but just to see the details of um, how, how engineers have built these locks where a boat goes in and the doors close and then that water slowly fills the lock and it raises the lock up, the, the ship, you know, a thousand tons of steel up 28 feet and then the doors open on the other side and they go out and you're in a whole new place. Uh, it's incredible how, um, how, how a lock works. But as I was watching this video and thinking about this week, it occurred to me, that's a little bit what trusting God feels like. Uh, you kind of, you know, trusting God in general, yeah, that sounds great, but to actually trust God uh, in the moment often feels like you're entering into this lock and the doors close and you're trapped and you're stuck and you don't know exactly what's going on. But slowly, 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 almost imperceptibly so much of the time, change is happening and something is going on and God is at work. And then the doors eventually open on the other side and without even knowing anything has happened, you the doors open and you realize you're in a completely different place. Something has changed. You're at a new a level altogether. It's a little bit about uh, a picture, I think, of what it feels like to trust God. This morning we're finishing this series that we've been in the last five weeks on the life of Abraham. And what we've been doing in this series is asking the question, what does it look like to live a life of faith? And uh, so often in the world that we live in, the word faith, I think, is completely misunderstood, or the way that we use the word faith in our culture is, is different than the way the Bible uses the word faith. In our culture, um, when we use the word faith, we tend to mean something like uh, believing something despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary. So um, obviously we think of that in terms of you know, a religious context, but you know, we might use the word faith when we say something like, uh, the gas light's on, I think I can make it. You know, I, I'm just going to have faith that, that it's going to work out okay. <laughs> um, that's how we think about faith often is, it might not work, but I, you know, I have faith. I have faith. Um, the Bible talks about faith in a, in a very different way. Um, the Bible talks about faith like this. Um, the Bible talks about Abraham as the example of the man of faith, an example of what it looks like to live a life of faith. And so what I've been coming back to, or trying to come back to each week in this series, um, is talking about this reality that so much of our lives, uh, we live kind of writing the ups and downs of our circumstances. When times are good, we're doing great. And when times aren't so good, or times are hard, or you know, life is frustrating, then we're down in the dumps and we just kind of ride the waves of, of our circumstances. But Abraham shows us that living a life of faith um, means learning how to thrive despite our circumstances. Learning how to thrive not just when times are good, but when times are bad. Uh, Abraham lived a big life. He lived a full life. He lived a great life. And the Bible holds him out to us as the man of faith, showing us what it looks like to live a life of faith. Um, how do we live a life of faith that is full, um, that is good, that is great, even when things aren't going our way, when it doesn't feel like the wind is at our back, 
uh, when the circumstances of life feel like they're going to toss us overboard. So what we've seen in this, um, this series over the last five weeks is that living a life of faith means answering the call of God to leave and following God out into the world on his kind of kingdom mission. And then we saw that as soon as we do that, eventually there's going to come like a speed bump in the road where you're going to want to get off. And so living a life of faith means learning to remain. And then we saw that uh, learning to live by faith means really learning how to sleep and having proper confidence in God. And then last week we talked about uh, living by faith means waiting and not taking things into our own hands, but waiting on the Lord. And today we're going to look at this final and most famous passage about the life of Abraham. And what I want you to see is what does it look like to trust God? What does it look like to trust God? Um, how do we do that? What would it look like? What would give us the, um, the motivation to trust God? And so what I want you to see in this passage is uh, the radical invitation. The radical invitation that God uh, lays out before Abraham and before us to, uh, to trust him. And then what I want you to see, secondly, is the true horror of this passage, because this is a pretty shocking passage, isn't it? Uh, what's the true horror of this passage? It's not what we think it is. And then finally, I want you to see um, the true wonder and how that causes us to be people who actually trust. So firstly, the radical invitation. What's happening in this passage? Well, we saw last week, um, the passage we looked at last week was like 20 years earlier in the life of Abraham. Um, and Abraham, the whole story of the life of Abraham is God has made him these promises and they all hang on Abraham having a son, having an heir, having an offspring. God said, you're going to be great. You're going to live this great full life and you're going to become a, a great man and the whole world is going to be blessed through you and everybody's going to know who you are. And uh, Abraham says, but I don't have a son. I don't even have a son, <laughs> you know, let alone an entire nation of sons. And uh, how is this all going to happen? And so Abraham's constantly trying to trust, like this balancing act of can I trust God or can I wait on God or God, why aren't you giving me a son? And so um, finally, at long last, when Abraham is 99 years old, God gives him a son. And God is faithful and God has come through. And God, uh, God delivers for Abraham. He gives him a son. But... Um, uh, <laughs> oh, before actually God gives him a son, he changes his name. Uh, I, I've called him Abraham, it's just easier, but he, um, his name is originally Abraham. Now, Abraham means father, and then God changes his name to, uh, Ab uh, sorry, Abram means father, and then Abraham becomes his new name, and, and uh, Abraham means father of nations. And I think you've got to like, appreciate the irony of, of this for, for Abraham. I mean, he goes down to like, hang out with his friends at the pub or whatever, and they're like, Abraham, huh? Father of nations. Like, how many kids do you have, Abraham? He's like, I don't even have a kid. Like, how are you going to be the father of a nation, Abraham? Um, but finally, at long last, after 99 years, Sarah, his wife, gets pregnant, and they have a son, and Isaac is born. And so then here in verse 2, you know, Abraham, uh, uh, Isaac is probably 10 or 12 years old at this point. And in verse 2, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will, ship, I will tell you. 
Now notice that this invitation or this test is actually very similar to what God has continually called Abraham to throughout his life. Uh, all the way back to the original call that God you know, issued to Abraham in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to leave everything that's familiar and comfortable to you, and I want you to go somewhere, but I'm not telling you where yet. And so there, there are these similarities all the way through. The call of God to Abraham and to us has these similarities. In both places, God is calling Abraham to leave. He's saying, I want you to go somewhere. In both places, God calls Abraham to go to a place that he will show him. Um, did you notice even here in this passage, it says, go to the land or the region of Moriah, and I'll tell you which mountain to go to when you get there. God's constantly calling us to leave without telling us exactly where we're going to. And in both places, God is calling Abraham to give up something. Uh, originally, it was his family connections, the place he knew, the place where he was known, his home, his security, his comfort. And here, he's calling, him, calling Abraham to give up his son. And when God says, I want you to offer up your son, your only son, you know, there's this repetition Offer up your son, your only son, the one that you love. How does that strike you? I mean, doesn't it feel a little bit like God is like rubbing it in? Um, well, he's not just rubbing it in. What he's, what he's making very clear is, is one, Ishmael is gone. Um, that's a whole other story, but um, we're, we don't have time to get into that this morning. But, but what he's making very clear is Isaac is the only son that he has. Um, Isaac is the family's only hope for a future. Isaac is the only hope for God to be faithful to his promise. And that is now um, what God is asking Abraham to give up. But not only that, um, Isaac has become, and this makes sense, Isaac has become um, Abraham's like emotional foundation. He loves his son. Um, Isaac is his life and his joy. And now the radical invitation that comes to Abraham is to offer him up. Okay, so what is the challenge? Do you see how radical this is? This isn't just a, um, a question. Hey, do you trust God? Um, the, the radical call to trust God is to give up any human, any finite thing that we would look to as our source of comfort or security. Um, anything that we would look to to say, life is bearable as long as I have this. God is going to call us to give that up as we learn to trust him. That's what it means to trust God. You see just how radical that is. Because when we talk about trusting God, do you trust God? I trust God, sure. <laughs> I mean, I don't not trust him. Like, I'm not going to bet against God. Like, yeah, of course I trust God. But I trust a lot of things and a lot of people. And I, I trust people based on my experience with them. I trust my... You know, I, I trust my spouse in certain ways. I trust my children in different ways. I trust uh, my work in some ways. I trust, um, you know, and yeah, I trust God too. That's, that's, not, that's not what God is talking about here. That's not what this means. To trust God means to trust him in an ultimate sense. Or to flip that around and kind of put it differently, let me say it like this. Whatever you trust ultimately is de facto your God. Whatever it is that you trust ultimately, that is truly 
God in your life. See, if you say to God, God, I'm willing to kind of go to church and do these religious activities, as long as you're going to give me the thing that I ultimately want, then who's, who's your God? <laughs> it's, it's the thing you ultimately want that is truly your God. If you were to say, you know, my career might go up in smoke, my relationships might be a mess, uh, and I don't like that, but at least I've still got my good looks. Would, would, would any of us say that? But, but <laughs> what's your real God then? It's, it's your appearance, right? It's, um, you might, whatever you say you believe about who Jesus is, um, if the thing that tells you you are good enough is your appearance, then that is your, that is your ultimate God, your de facto God. If, on the other hand, you were to say, you know, I'd rather not uh, lose my health or my family, but at the end of the day, I can get through anything as long as I've still got money in the bank, then you might confess that God is the author of life, but you are living like your financial security is the source of your true joy. And that's your ultimate God. That's your de facto God. Whatever you trust ultimately is your de facto God. And so putting your trust in God, um, when, when we become Christians, and I'm not assuming that everybody here would say that they're a Christian, but becoming a Christian means putting your trust in God and saying, God, I trust you to run my life. And yet, over time, if you become a Christian, you realize, okay, I theoretically trust in God, and yet there are so many other things in my life that I'm looking to uh, for comfort, for joy, for safety, for security, for pleasure. And so growing as a Christian, the Christian life, is a continual process of offering up to God whatever it is that has taken that place in our lives, in our hearts, saying, God, I know I'm okay as long as you come through for me in this way. Now, um, what does that mean? Does that mean if I find myself saying, okay, God, I'm, um, uh, I'm willing to follow you in any way as long as um, you, know, you promise me that my kids will be safe uh, because I could never believe in a God who would allow my kids to be harmed. Okay, that's what trusting God means. But does that mean if I say, if I begin to trust God with my kids, does that mean God's going to take my kids away? Well, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that, but it means that the growing of the Christian, the Christian life is this continual process of examining our hearts and um, identifying the ways that we've thrown something other than God in our lives and then repenting and offering that to God. Because um, here's the reality. Even if you live a pretty good life, uh, life tends to have a way of stripping away the things that we put our trust in, doesn't it? Um, the problem sometimes with being young is that we just haven't lived enough life to realize that the things that we put our hope in often get stripped away. Um, if you've lived, you know, if you've kind of, if you're, if you live a hard life, this, you, you begin to learn this in your teens. I think most of us begin to learn it in our 20s, but we think it's just a phase. And then our 30s and beyond, we begin to go, oh, this is just the reality of life. God uses the ups and downs of life to strip away the things that I enthrone other than him. Life has a way of stripping away the things that we functionally trust in. And here's the thing. Every time it happens, it's a new opportunity to trust God. To look and say, um, God, I thought I needed this. But life stripped it away, and yet you continue to be good. And so I'm going to trust you. So I'm going to trust you. 
Every time life strips away something we think we need in order to be happy or content um, or to be whole, it's another opportunity to trust God and to realize that everything he brings into our life is for our good and for his glory. It takes time to learn how to trust God. This is one of the great things, I think, uh, about the, the life of Abraham, is that it, it shows us that a life of faith is not a life of perfection. God is so patient. God is so gracious. Um, the reason we don't trust strangers is because we don't know them. We don't have any experience with them. It takes time to learn how to trust somebody. It takes time of being together, and it takes time to learn how to trust God as well. But over time, we learn through experience to trust others because we learn what they're like. And in the same way, over time and through experience, we learn how to trust God. One of the realities that we learn about life is this, that anything that we put our trust in other than God will ultimately let us down. You know, if, if we put our trust in our intelligence, we'll always be worried about being found out as a fraud. If we put our trust in our financial security, we'll always worry that we don't have quite enough. If we put our trust in our relationships, we'll be insecure that the person that we value above all else might one day turn on us. Um, one of the realities about life is learning that everything else we put our trust in other than God will ultimately let us down. But living by faith means learning to trust God. Okay, that is the radical call. Um, it's not trusting God in like a Hallmark card sort of way. It's examining our hearts and saying, God, what have I put above you? And then handing that over to God, offering it over to God and saying, God, I trust you. I trust you. So how do you do that? Um, how do you actually trust God in that radical of a way? Well, if you think that willpower, just like sheer force of will, is going to be enough to um, help you trust God when life is hard, um, i, I, I got to say I don't think that's going to do it. And so the second thing I want you to see in this passage is the, what the real horror of this passage is. Um, because, you know, when, when God calls... Abraham to sacrifice his son. We look at this as 21st century people and go, what? God, what in the world? It's horrific. But that's not actually the horror of this passage. That's not actually the horror of this passage. Um, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a traditionalistic, moralistic way of reading this passage that basically says that the meaning of this passage is no matter what God asks you to do, no matter how crazy it may sound, no matter um, the extent to which you don't understand it, you just have to do it. You just have to obey. And um, I do not believe that that is the point of this passage, but throughout, this pa uh, throughout history, there are many people who have kind of read this passage in particular and come to that conclusion and rejected the Bible, rejected Christianity on that basis. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the outspoken atheist in his book, The God Delusion, he wrote this. The God of the Old Testament is argu arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal. Philicidal means somebody who kills their children. Pestilential, that means somebody who spreads plague. Megalomaniacal, I don't even know how to say that. Sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. Uh, he's got away with words, at least we can give him that. Um, okay, so how are you going to respond to that? Because 
like you can understand where he's coming from on the basis of this passage, right? Um, certainly God's call to Abraham to demonstrate his trust by killing his son appears horrific. And um, in fact, if any of us were to leave here today and say, well, I guess God wants me to go home and kill my child, and you were to go home and do that, um, like we would all be horrified. We wouldn't hold that up as an example of, wow, what a, what a brave example of trusting God. So what's going on here? Well, in order to understand what's going on in this passage, we have to understand uh, what would have been very obvious to Abraham. Uh, we don't live in the same culture that Abraham lived in, obviously. We live in an individualistic culture. And in an individualistic culture, um, the question that we all ask is, how can I maximize my own personal happiness? Um, you know, you might change the word happiness, but you understand what I mean. How can I maximize my individual personal success? Uh, the ancient world was not an individualistic world, and so it was a more family-oriented communal culture, and in that culture, the question everybody asked was not how do I maximize my individual success, it was how do I maximize my family's success? How do I maximize my tribe's uh, success? How do I, how do I, um, how do we become great as a people, as a family unit, or as a tribe together? And so one of the ways that they did this was the way that inheritance was passed down. And this was universally the practice throughout the ancient world. Um, when the patriarch of a family passed away, the lion's share of the inheritance went to the oldest child. It didn't matter if he had two children or four or 12, it didn't matter. The oldest child, the oldest son, got the lion's share of the inheritance. And the reason for this was simple. Uh, if you had two children or four children or 12 children, it doesn't take a genius to see that if you divided the property between them equally, after a couple of generations, everybody's living on a little postage stamp. And so the way to ensure that the family name continues to be uh, recognized was by giving almost all of the inheritance to the oldest son. And it then became the oldest son's responsibility to be the benefactor for the entire extended family. That's universally the way the world worked in, uh, in the ancient world. Everybody knew that. Abraham knew that. Um, that's what everybody did. And yet, there's this funny thing that happens throughout the book of Genesis that God it kind of continues to poke holes in that arrangement that the oldest son is kind of the, the chosen one, the, the, the hope of the family, the one who is going to be the one to, uh, to provide blessing, not just for himself, but for his extended family. I mean, you see this uh, when God chooses Abel over Cain. Um, we see this when God... Uh, prefers Isaac over Ishmael, the younger son over the older. We see this with, uh, with Jacob and Esau. Um, and over and over again throughout the Bible, God is kind of um, like subtly undermining this, this law that the oldest son is the, uh, the, the, the child of promise that everyone puts their hope in. But then God goes even a step further, and he begins to claim the firstborn son for himself. And uh, you, you see this a few, a few places in the Old Testament, but you really see this especially in, um, in the story of the Passover, where essentially what God is doing is he is, he is saying, um, because each of us individually, but in this 
communal culture he's emphasizing because each of us, not only individually, but communally, as a family, uh, is culpable for sin. We have incurred a debt. Uh, and because we are sinners, both individually and communally, what God does, you see this again in the Passover most particularly, is God begins to say, I am going to claim the firstborn son for myself. And the firstborn son becomes, uh, it's like God's turning the tables on this, uh, on this culture that says the firstborn son is the hope of the family. God turns the tables and says the firstborn son might be the hope of the family, but the firstborn son is mine. Uh, I have claimed him for myself. That is the debt that every family owes God because of the penalty for sin, and he is mine. And so that is, that is what's going on in the background here. And so when God says, Abraham, I want you to go and offer up your son, what he knows is that God is calling in his family's debt. Um, as they're walking up the mountain, um, you know, how, how, did, how would Abraham like get himself up that mountain? Um, if Abraham came from a traditional, you know, if he just had this kind of traditionalistic, moralistic view of God, that no matter how crazy a thing God asks you to do, you just have to go do it. Um, let me back up and put it like this. If God was just calling Abraham to kill Isaac, to go and murder his son, to show how much he really, really trusts God, why the three-day journey? Why the ritual? Why the sac? Like, why do all of that? If God just wants to see, is Abraham crazy enough to follow me no matter what I tell him to do? Why didn't he just grab a knife and go over to the tent and just kill him right then? But God doesn't say, I want you to murder uh, Isaac. He says, I want you to offer up Isaac. And so as they're walking up the mountain, you know, they travel three days in silence, it seems like. And then the narrative slows way down. Um, you know, it's moving really fast. God says, go take your son, offer him the next day, saddles the donkey, and they're going. And then all of a sudden in verse 6 and 7, it slows down. And it says, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. It's slowing down. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham says, here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, God himself, God himself is going to provide the lamb. And I think what Abraham is saying is, I have no idea where the lamb is going to come from, but I'm trusting that God is going to provide. What would motivate Abraham to walk up that mountain? See, if it's just that Abraham is a moralist who says, I gotta do this, I hate this, but I gotta do it, I gotta obey God no matter what. Um, I don't believe that that old man would have had the strength to walk up that mountain unless um, he understood his own culpability. Okay, um, a traditionalist person, a moralistic person says, God, I obeyed you, and therefore I deserve certain benefits. 
And Abraham could look at God and say, God, you know, I called you, I followed you when you told me to leave home. Uh, I've done all of these things you've asked me to do. God, I've done everything, but I'm not going to do this. That's too far. I'm not going to kill my son. The only way I believe that Abraham could actually walk up that mountain is if he knew he owed a debt. And if he understood that God was claiming the life of his oldest son as the payment for that debt. But Abraham, um, he's not a traditionalist. Neither is he kind of more of a modern person. You know, what, what would we say? Uh, we would say to God, God, there's no way. Like, there's no way. I, I, I don't know you that. God, I've done, I've done what you've asked me, but I, I don't know you that, God. Abraham doesn't fall into either of those categories, into either of those groups. Um, because the only way, you know, when we say that, like, God, um, I've done everything you've asked me to do. Like, we say that. Is that really true? Like, Abraham knows that's not really true. Abraham knows that um, he's hardly obeyed God at all this entire time. Uh, he's been incredibly reluctant to, to follow God as he's led. He, yeah, he's left home, but then he, he, he ran away, and then he... You know, his wife is always getting the, the short end of the deal. Um, and so as he's walking up that hill, here's what Abraham must be thinking. On the one hand, he's thinking, I owe God this debt. I haven't obeyed. God has called in my debt, and so I owe him. And on the other hand, God has promised to bless the whole world, and he's promised to bless the whole world through Isaac. And so if Isaac is dead, God is not going to be faithful to his promise. But if he doesn't sacrifice Isaac, then how can God be just? How can the just judge let sin go unpunished? And so as Abraham is walking up that hill, and as Isaac says to him, Father, where are we going to get the lamb? And Abraham's saying, God himself will provide the lamb. I think he's saying, I have no idea. I have no idea. What I know is I owe God this debt. And I'm trusting that God is going to provide. So do you see now the true horror of this passage? The true horror of this passage isn't child sacrifice. The true horror of this passage is how can a just God deal with me and with you graciously? When Abraham is looking at his son and feeling the weight of his sin and guilt and knowing that this is the just penalty for his sin, And a just God cannot go unpunished. He's wondering how can God be both just and merciful. God is either going to let his promise fail or God is going to be unjust. That's the true horror of this passage. And just as it's about to come to its horrific conclusion, God intervenes. And God provides a substitute. And there's a lamb that is there caught in the bushes. And Isaac is taken off the altar. And a lamb is sacrificed in its place. A lamb is offered up instead of Isaac. A substitute takes his place. And of course, I think we know this intuitively. How can a lamb take the? Uh, how can a lamb pay for Abraham's sin? How can a lamb pay for Isaac? How can a lamb pay for my sin? Of course, we know that it, it can't. Um, and so we know what Abraham and Isaac could only sort of guess at. That this lamb is just pointing forward to the promise that God would one day fulfill. 
Interesting thing in the book of 2 Chronicles, it says that when Solomon was building the temple of God in Jerusalem, he built it on the mount on Mount Moriah. And what that means is that the hill on which Jesus, 1,800 years later, was sacrificed is this same place where Abraham took his son Isaac to offer him up before the Lord. And so as Jesus goes to the cross there on Mount Moriah, God finally answers the question. The justice of God is satisfied not by demanding the firstborn son of Isaac, not by demanding our firstborn sons, but giving his firstborn son as the substitute, as our sacrifice, offering him up as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the only Son of God himself. Jesus fully obeyed God on your behalf. And he goes to the cross in order to pay the penalty that you deserve for your sin. And friends, what that means for you is good news. Because when Jesus, when God now looks at you, he sees not the debt that you owe, but the perfect record of Jesus earned on your behalf. And when you know that, when you know that God doesn't demand penalty for your sin from you, but instead offers his own son as a sacrifice, it will change you. It will change you. I, you know, what would Abraham have said if he had been there at the foot of the cross 1,800 years later? I think finally Abraham would have looked to the cross and would have said to God the words that God says to Abraham here. Now I know truly that you love me. God, now I know that you love me because you didn't withhold even your own son from me. Friends, that's true for you and for me. God did not withhold his own son even from us. And when you know that, he, didn't, he loves you. You know that he loves you because he didn't withhold his own son from you. It will change you. It will melt your heart and you will trust God, not out of willpower, but as a response to his grace. So what does it actually look like to trust God? Well, let me finish with just kind of two quick, how do I actually do this? Two things I think this passage would... Um, would lead us to conclude, what does it look like to trust God? First of all, uh, trusting God means continually following God when he says, go to the place that I will tell you later. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about this. I wrote that, and then I was thinking about, is that true? Yeah, that's true. Um, it's been true in my own life. When I was in middle school, I was 12 or 13 years old, and I went with a youth group from my church to this conference, and I don't really remember what the conference was about, but I remember, you know, the climactic moment when, you know, a room with thousands of teenagers and the speaker said, you know, challenged us, if you are willing to say to God, God, no matter where you lead me, I will go. No matter what you call me to do, I will follow you then I want you to come forward. And I remember just getting up and coming forward and they gave us these little nails that I carried around in my pocket and would poke me in the leg and, uh, and then I lost the nail. But the point is this. The point is this. I had literally no idea what that would mean when I was 12 or 13 years old. It was, it was just purely theoretical saying, God, I'm going to trust you no matter what you ask me to do. God is continually calling us to follow him somewhere and saying, I'm going to show you where you're going to get to later. And that's what the Christian life 
is like, if we say, God, I'm willing to trust you as long as it makes sense to me, then you're not trusting God, you're trusting yourself. And here's the thing, guys. I, I talk to people all the time who say something like, if I'm a Christian, does that mean I'm going to have to do this or give up that? And as long as you are answering kind of that question on the basis of what you're going to have to do or give up, you're not actually trusting God, you're trusting yourself. I talk to people all the time who say things like, you know, I know we need to get our kids to church because they're asking questions about God and I've got no idea what to tell them and so we're probably going to do that as soon as the soccer schedule calms down. God is going to lead us to places and not show us where we're going until we get there. And trusting him means following him no matter what. You know, I talk to people who say, you know, some version of, you know, we love to uh, support the work of the church financially, and maybe when we finish our remodel, we'll start, we'll start doing that. Trusting God means following God as he calls us to uh, not knowing where exactly we're going, not knowing how it's all going to work out, not knowing what the details are going to look like. Trusting God means continually following God when he says, go to the place that I'll tell you later. And then the second thing that I think trusting God means is it means sometimes the God who's trying to save you, it will feel like he's trying to kill you. Uh, Sometimes it will feel like the God who's trying to save you is trying to kill you. Uh, My younger two kids this summer, it was one of our goals to get them like safe in a swimming pool, teach them to swim, you know, not that they can go swimming by themselves, but without having to worry about, you know, the constant fear of, of swimming pools uh, and knowing they'll be safe. And it, it kind of just reminded me of learning how to swim myself. And I remember as a little kid, it, it seemed like swimming lessons always happened at like six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but it was so cold and the pool is freezing cold and then they make you jump in the pool and the first things you have to do is like, dunk your head under the water about a thousand times and it feels like you're dying. And then as soon as you do that, they're like, go jump in the deep end and swim across. And you're like, I'm going to die if I do that. And then they're like, and then I want you to go jump off the high dive. And I'm like, no, I'm going to die if I jump off the high dive. And every step along the way, we're doing what feels like will kill us. And yet it's all part of the process of learning how to actually live. (laughs) Guys, that's what it means to trust God. It means that we follow God even when following God feels like it's going to kill you. So how do we thrive despite our circumstances? We thrive despite our circumstances by learning to live by faith. And the reality in our world is that we expect living by faith to be something that comes easily. Um, We expect living by faith to be something that feels natural and authentic and organic. Um, You know, like eating chocolate. Eating chocolate. You put a piece of chocolate in your mouth and you experience the reward immediately, right? But I think living by faith is a little bit more like learning to appreciate classical music. I'm sure I'm going to offend somebody when I say this, but there is a general feeling among some people that classical music is boring. And if you're a person who really loves classical music, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking the only reason you could think classical music is boring is because you just haven't taken the time to learn how to appreciate it yet. 
And if you take the time and you learn to understand what's going on, and maybe you learn an instrument and you, you understand the, the theory and, you know, I don't know how to describe it because I don't appreciate classical music. <laughs> but you understand the point of the illustration, right? It takes time. You have to develop a taste for it. Living by faith is more like learning to enjoy classical music than eating chocolate. It takes time to learn to enjoy. And when you do learn to live by faith, then you will finally say, I trust God and I'm so glad because there's truly no other way to live. So friends, let me encourage you as we conclude this series on the life of Abraham to follow God as he calls you to leave, as he calls you out into the world in mission, to remain on the kingdom of God plan even when life throws speed bumps at you, to learn how to sleep because God is the one who is going to accomplish his purposes to wait and not take things into your own hands, and finally to trust God. He is good, and he will not let you down. Let's pray. Oh God, would you help us to trust you? God, we, we don't have the, um, the knowledge, the energy, the willpower. We don't have the human resources to be the people that you've called us to be. And yet, God, we want to live big, full lives. The one, lives like the one Abraham lived, lives like uh, you call us to, to be people not uh, riding the ups and downs of our circumstances, but living um, a steady, calm life of faith. Would you do that through us? We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the Lamb of God, the firstborn Son, who is our hope because he paid the price that we deserve. Thank you that you did not spare your only Son, but gave him up. Would you help us to trust you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.